Please, brothers and sisters, if you would, turn with me to our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation, as we will be looking at this morning, chapter 1, in verses 4 through 8. Revelation, chapter 1, and verses 4 through 8. Revelation, chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. Please, brothers and sisters, if you would, then hear with me. The reading of God's holy word. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Now, brothers and sisters, there are Many times in our lives in which we feel oftentimes, I think, isolated and alone. Uh, we may be going, thing, going through things that we think that many others uh, don't get or cannot understand. It may be a spiritual conflict in your life. Uh, it might be struggle with sin, fierce temptations, perhaps uh, pressure from the world from ungodly family members or friends. It may be pain of some sort of loss. It may be an ailment that that eats away, not at you just physically, but also eats away at you spiritually. And we may feel that oftentimes we have it worse than others. That, That there are so many others out there in the world who just do not understand the plight of the Christian. Right? Certainly the church in the first century, as we looked at last week, has been experiencing grave difficulties, haven't they? Pressure to engage in emperor worship, we said. Uh, Pressure to compromise their faithful Christian witness and testimony. Pressure to give in to, to all sorts of false teaching. Pressure to conform to pagan culture and society. Right? They were dealing with the threat of, of imprisonment and even death. So persecution impacted not only though these seven churches, but, but beyond. As we said that this, this number seven was chosen for a particular theological purpose. And surely there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor who were dealing with these things. Asia Minor, which now makes up what is the western part of Turkey, was, was also uh, consisted of, of, of co- the churches of Colossae were there. Right, Troas were there. Heropolis were in Asia Minor. And surely 
they were dealing with the same persecution that these seven churches were. And so they too needed the encouragement of this book. And God understood this. He knew this. This is why when he, when he has John write these instructions to the church, at the end of, of them, what does he say to them? He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right, so it's not just Ephesus, listen to what I say to Ephesus, or Philadelphia, listen to what I say to Philadelphia, but everyone who has ears to hear, listen to what I say to all the churches. Right, this, brothers and sisters, was, was a circular letter that would have been passed along from church to church, and it would have went into the hands of other churches, not just these seven, in order to provide for them great encouragement in the midst of their unwanted affliction. Just as today, as we gather to read the book of Revelation, right, this book has been given to us as an encouragement as well in the midst of our unwanted affliction. Right? Surely, these churches are thinking many ways in the same way in which we think today. They're thinking, man, we feel isolated. We feel like there are a lot of people who can't understand the, the plight of the Christian living in our day and our time. But here, brothers and sisters, is where we have to see the beauty of the book of Revelation come out to us. Because Jesus has John record this to His church to tell them that even though perhaps no one else gets what you're going through, no one else understands the plight of the Christian life, Christ does. Right? That is what Jesus is saying to His church in this book. Right? Christ has John record this letter for His bride to ensure her that He has already won the battle and that relief is coming so that His church might be strengthened, so that we might stand tall in the midst of persecution and not succumb to temptation, knowing that Christ is coming soon. And when Christ comes, He will defeat evil once and for all. And when He does, He will establish that everlasting kingdom of peace where we will reign with Him in glory forever. And so John wants this message to seep deep into the minds and the hearts of the people. And so he establishes this great truth to the people that he is writing to in this salutation this morning. And in this salutation, what we see John do is he pronounces a blessing at the very outset. And this is going to be the first point in our study this morning. It's going to be the blessing pronounced. That's point number one, the blessing pronounced. Now at the opening of verse 4, we see that the author identifies himself, right? He says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now if you recall from Sunday school, we we addressed this, but it, it bears repeating. That to just identify yourself as John, right? When you're writing to, to seven churches in Asia, in Asia Minor at large, right, you have to be someone who the people know about. right? You have to be someone who already has some cachet, some authority amongst the people, that they would just know you by that name, John. right? As he called himself earlier, a servant of the Lord. And so it makes sense to us that this is the uh, Apostle John who is writing this to these seven churches. Now after this very brief introduction of himself, we see this uh, ancient epistolary greeting used by John, which is, one of grace and peace. He says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. 
Now, what I want us to see here is that this is one of the reasons that we classify uh, the book of Revelation not only as an apocalyptic book and a prophetic book, but we, it's also classified in the genre of, of letter or epistle. Because think about it, when we look to the, the letters of Paul, how do they oftentimes begin? They begin like this, right? Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, grace and peace or grace and mercy to you. And we see here that John takes up that same formula. Now, when we think also, though, about New Testament letters, there's oftentimes some occasion that precipitated the writing of the book, isn't there? There is some issue that arose in the church, which is why Paul or someone is writing to the church. He's writing to address a particular issue. But not only is he writing to address an issue, he oftentimes write to, writes to correct them on the issue, uh, to... Uh, establish them in the truth to exhort them to obedience until the very end. Now, what's the issue going on uh, with these churches? We said last week it was persecution and, and severe persecution that they were suffering. And so the temptation to, to compromise and the proclivity to grow weary in the face of that persecution was a very present and real reality to these people. And so John writes, and he pronounces his blessing over the churches, grace to you and peace. And what we need to see is it's, it's this grace and peace that they in their very present condition were so desperately in need of. And brothers and sisters, though we, we likewise need to see that it is the same grace and peace that you and I are so desperately in need of every single day and moment of our lives. Now, we need to see that this is not, though, the common grace that sometimes we talk about. That common grace by which God bestows grace to all of His humanity, in which He allows the, you know, the rainwaters to fall on the just and the unjust. But rather, this is His special grace and peace to His church, those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. This is grace and peace that John pronounces to who? He pronounces it to the church, not the world. In fact, brothers and sisters, this is a grace and peace I submit to you that the world knows nothing of. They know nothing of it. In fact, this is what the prophet Isaiah tells us. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 21. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Right? There is no peace for the wicked. And that is because this saving grace that only the saints receive is the very root of peace. Right? Grace is the root of peace. And so this isn't common grace. This is that saving grace that he is talking about here. We might say it another way, that, that peace is a fruit of grace. Right? Grace being that unmerited favor of God by which He sent forth His Son to suffer and die for our sins that He might redeem for Himself a people that we might have forgiveness of sin and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. And then peace, which is the, the quieting of our hearts. Understanding now the relationship in which we stand to God, no longer one of hostility, but rather now, brothers and sisters, one of favor with God as we are, are counted His children. And yet, without daily supplies of God's grace and God's peace, we need to understand that we could not endure, neither could the church in the first century. We are constantly in need of that renewal of God's grace and peace every single day of our lives. 
I would liken it to if you're in the hospital ever and you, you get the IV in your arm and they, they're constantly changing the bag when it, when it goes out. Right? Cause that, that, that IV, it's pr- providing for you nourishment and food and it's, it's strengthening you. Right? That is what we need. We need daily uh, to be administered the, the grace and peace of God over and over and over again. Because without greater knowledge, uh, without uh, a more fuller assurance of, of faith and salvation, right, we, we very well might falter and fail in the midst of the pressure of this world to conform. Right? And so we need His grace to, to stand firm in all of this. And so John pronounces a blessing upon these churches of grace and peace. Right? And yet, brothers and sisters, I, he also wants them to understand by whose grace and peace it is that they are able to stand. Which is why he says grace and peace coming from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Now what I want us to see here is that this is actually a reference back to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. If you remember Exodus chapter 3, the Lord appears to Moses and He tells Moses, I'm sending you to Egypt uh, to bring out My people from captivity. And Moses then asked him, Well, Lord, when I go there, who am I to tell them has sent me? Right? What is, the, what is your name that I'm going to tell them? And what is the response of the Lord to Moses? He says this, Tell the people, I am who I am sent you. I am who I am sent you. Now, here's the interesting part. In the Greek Septuagint, this verse is translated, I am he who is. I am He who is. And so we see John takes that up here. To Him who is and who was and who is to come. Right? He's quoting Exodus 3.14 from the Greek Septuagint. I am He who is. And so what is John trying to do? He's trying to highlight the fact that their God is an eternal, a self-existent God who is sovereign over all of history. Right? Past, present, Future, how he, he moves everything along. How it is he who has control over every affair. And how can this not be great motivation for the church to press on in the midst of their current struggle? Right? To know that it is this God who is to be their courage and who tells them, I will be the one who promises you grace and peace and I will supply it for you so that you may endure to the bitter end. But brothers and sisters, what we also need to see is that this is a grace and peace that is supplied to the church through whom? Through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is described to us as the seven spirits who is before the throne. And what I want us to see actually that in particular the seven spirits before the throne is really describing to us the Holy Spirit and His effective working throughout the churches. Right? That's really what the seven spirits before the throne is symbolizing to us. And here is why I say that. Because this idea comes to us from Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah 4, uh, he has this vision of a lampstand and seven lamps, and there are seven eyes, uh, which are eyes of the Lord over the earth, depicting the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we're told. That's what we're told. 
And the Holy Spirit's role in uh, Zechariah 4 is to bring God's grace. And this idea from Zechariah 4 is then picked up for us in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. So if you'd like to, you could turn there. Revelation 5 verse 6. So remember, in Zechariah 4, you have seven lamps and you have seven eyes. And now that's picked up in Revelation 5, 6. And here's what we read. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns. And here we go. With seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And so we see Zechariah 4 tells us that the the seven eyes is the Holy Spirit. And in Revelation, John tells us that the seven eyes are the seven spirits. So John is identifying the seven spirits with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not the only reason why we see uh, the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits who is before the throne. Additionally, we see this uh, come to us in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2. It's here in Isaiah where he describes the sevenfold spirit who is going to come upon the Messiah and equip him for the work of the ministry. And who is that that does that? Right? It's, it's the Holy Spirit that we talked about in Isaiah chapter 42 this morning in Sunday school. And now we see in, in Mark chapter 1 as the Holy Spirit depend, uh, descends upon Christ as a dove. One last argument I would say for why we ought to understand the seven spirits as the Holy Spirit in the fullness of His activity and power amongst the churches would be to simply answer the question for yourself, to whom does grace and peace come from? Who is it that bestows upon the church grace and peace? It's the Holy Spirit, right? And so it makes sense that the seven spirits before the throne is the Holy Spirit. And so what John is trying to tell us is that this is the triune God. right? Grace and peace to you from the triune God. The one who is, who was, who is to come. From the seven spirits was the Holy Spirit. And then this is why he goes on to, right after it, to say, and to Jesus, and from Jesus Christ. Designating this threefold title as faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, and ruler of the kings of the earth. Right? He's, he's telling the people, right, grace and peace from our triune God. Now we have to ask though, why then this, this threefold designation of Jesus as faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth? Well, if, I think if we break each one down and just take them one by one, really shortly, really briefly, I think it will become obvious to us. So he identifies Jesus as, as faithful witness. And we see this in Jesus' ministry, don't we? In John chapter 18 and verse 37, Jesus says to Pilate, For this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Right? Jesus came into the world to bear witness, to be a, a faithful witness to the world. And let me ask you, what happened to Jesus as faithful witness? Right? What did being faithful witness do for Jesus? It got Jesus killed, didn't it? And so the churches are reminded that this grace and peace comes from the faithful witness, Jesus Christ, 
who died for the truth and who died for His church so that they too, the saints that they are writing to today, would not be discouraged by persecution or be fearful of imprisonment or death, but that they too would remain faithful witnesses just as Christ their example was. That they too would be faithful unto the end even if it means death. This is why, though, he follows up after calling him a faithful witness by calling him the firstborn of the dead. Right? He's saying, don't be afraid if you're a faithful witness and you die being faithful witness because Jesus defeated death. He is the firstborn of the dead. And so he now rules over all of life. And so his resurrection is a guarantee to every believer that if you remain a faithful witness to the bitter end, you will be raised just as Christ was. That is what He is telling us. Because since Jesus conquered death in the grave, all who trust in the Lord likewise have conquered death in the grave as well. So death in the grave cannot hold you down any longer. Fear not, saints. That's what John's saying. And as Jesus is conqueror over death, we're told that He now reigns sovereignly over all things as He has been given a name above all names, as He has been highly exalted, as He has taken His seat on His throne at the right hand of God, being what? The ruler of the kings of the earth. Now why do you think John says to these first century saints that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth? Well, just think about it. Remember, they're under the the rule and reign of Domitian. In 95 A.D., who is, who is a persecutor of the church. Right? Christians are being persecuted in prison and killed. And so, Domitian also takes for himself that title, though. The ruler of the kings of the earth. And so, what, what John is saying to the Christians as he writes this is, no, brothers and sisters, Domitian is not the ruler of the kings of the earth. Rather, it is Christ who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Right? Anyone who takes those titles for themselves is merely a pretender. Right? Their kingdom is an earthly kingdom. Their throne is, a, is an earthly throne. But there is one who is king above all earthly rulers. And that is King Jesus. That is what John is conveying to the saints. That, that Domitian and every ruler who would come after him will only rule for a short time. They're only going to be here temporarily. And then Christ will return and He will defeat every evil ruler and put an end to their wicked and rebellious rule. And think about, brothers and sisters, think about just all throughout history how encouraging that message must be for, for the saints. I mean, think about some of the worst, the worst rulers that have, that have come into history. I mean, think about, think about Christians in the time of you know, Hitler and, and Stalin. I mean, think about how encouraging this message would have been to them. Hitler and Stalin, although they are rulers over you right now, it's temporary. But even they have a ruler above them who is going to judge them in righteousness. So do not worry. Do do not be afraid, for Christ is coming. And brothers and sisters, this this message is is as true today, or as, as true then as it is today for us. Right? That, that we are not to look to the, the government. We are not to look to, to rulers uh, in, 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 
and think that they are, are here to be our friends or here to treat us well. Right? But rather, we are going to be persecuted. Right? We are going to suffer. But we must know that nothing that they can do can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. Right? Nothing they can do can separate us. For the one who bestows this grace and peace to his church is the one who rules over time and history and the one who effectually works his grace amongst us who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the earth. And we need to be reminded of that on a, on a daily basis. Now this takes us into point number two, which is the doxology proclaimed. The doxology proclaimed. Now when the hurting, militant church hears that God is going to pour out His grace and peace and abundance upon them through the work of the Spirit. The only acceptable and proper response, fitting response of the saints is to do what? It's to praise the Lord. It's to, it's to sing His praises. It's to turn to Him and, and bless His name. And this is what we see in verse 5b and 6. Look with me there once more, please. Starting in verse 5b. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and to His Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The very reason uh, that we have this grace and peace from God is to be located in God's love for His church. And how does God love His church? Right? He, he loved His church in sending His, his Son to die for it. That was his, his great demonstration of love to us. As John says here, to Him who loves us, He freed us from our sins by Christ's blood. Right? It is because of what Christ did that we have been freed from enslavement to sin as His shed blood was necessary. Right? Without the shedding of blood, there cannot be the remission of sin. Right? It was through the, the, the cross and the death of Christ that He secured for us, His people, His precious possession. Right? It is through the, the death of Christ that He has made us, right? His, His peculiar people. And so the question is, brothers and sisters, that if God loved us so much that He sent His Son into the world to die for us, right? what, what the first century church needed to be reminded of, and what we need to be reminded of, is to, of today is, if He loved us so to do that then, do you think that the love of God will ever end for you? Absolutely not. There, there is no love of God that will end for you. It will go on. It is everlasting. Right? It is a fountain that does not run dry. And this is what the saints needed to hear in the midst of the persecution. God loves you. God loves you. Even if the government hates you and despises you, if your neighbors hate you and despise you, so much so that they're willing to turn you in, that you would suffer persecution and death, Right? No matter who hates you, whether you're alone and isolated and all to yourselves, there is one in heaven who loves you. Right? There is one in heaven who loves you. And He loved you so that He sent His Son into the world and, and it pleased Him to crush His Son for you. And so do not think that the Lord has forgotten about you just because you are going through struggles and trials and persecution and suffering. Everything that you go through, brothers and sisters, is meant to make you to be 
who God has saved you to become. And who is that? It is a perfected, Christ-resembling, glorified saint. That is why He has set you apart. That is what He is making you to be in Christ Jesus. And that is what He is working in us through all that we experience and go through. And yet, what what does John want to remind the church? That yet, there is something here for the church that, that God has already blessed and bestowed upon His church. And what is that? He has made us a kingdom. And He has made us priests to His God and Father. Now listen to this. This is a very interesting reference that John uses here. As he is reaching back and he's pulling from Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6. If you remember in Exodus 19 what's going on there is that Moses has led the Israelites uh, out of slavery and he's brought them to Sinai and now they have encamped around the mountain. And the Lord tells Moses, if my people obey my covenant, I will make them a kingdom of priests. Where does John say the fulfillment of this promise is to be found? In the church. The promise of this fulfillment is to be found in the church. The church stands as the true Israel, the spiritual Israel which comprises both Jew and Gentile. And this accords very well with Paul's teaching, doesn't it? Romans 2 at the very end. What does Paul say? A Jew isn't a Jew who is one outwardly or by circumcision of the flesh. But what is a Jew? Someone who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Someone who has been circumcised in the heart. That is what a true Jew is. And so it is Christ in His coming and in His death who has now inaugurated these two functions of kingdom and priesthood for His people. What I also want us to see though is this, that just as Israel were called aliens in a land that was not their own when they were in Egypt, and Moses was sent to lead them out of captivity and to free them from bondage to a promised land through the first exodus, We, brothers and sisters, now in the New Testament are called what? Strangers and aliens who have been what? Rescued from our own captivity and our own bondage to sin. By whom? Jesus Christ, who is now leading us to the promised land through a new exodus, through the second exodus, which isn't an earthly land, but rather it is heaven itself. We need to see that. We need to understand that. We need to see in the church a typological fulfillment of what Israel experienced. And this is what the ancient church has always seen. This is why they confessed us, the church to be, the true Israel, because they believed what the Scripture said about it. They believed how Jesus interpreted who Israel is. They believed what Peter said about true Israel. They listened to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where Peter speaks of the church and says this, But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for my own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into a marvelous light. 
And in making us a, a kingdom and priest to God His Father, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? That He made us these things that we might declare the excellencies of God. That is why He has made us a, a kingdom and priests. That we might do and say the very thing that John does here. As John declares, to Him, to God, be glory and dominion forever and ever. That is what Christ's kingdom needs to be declaring here on earth as well. Also, let me ask you, what's the function of priests? What's the function of of the priesthood? They offered up sacrifices to God, didn't they? So too are we. Although we don't offer up grain offerings or, or meat offerings, but now we offer up a spiritual sacrifice to God. This is what the author to Hebrews says. He says, but it consists of the fruit of our lips, which acknowledge the name of the Lord. And it consists in doing that which is good and sharing what we have, for this is good and pleasing in the sight of God. And so in response to what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, we are to be obedient. We are to be who God has called us to be. A holy people. A kingdom. A priesthood. Right? A, a people who are set apart by God. Who have been given intimate access to our Lord. And so we are to be a people who confess His name and praise His name and bless His name and make use of His name in prayer. Or we are to acknowledge His authority, recognizing that we are who we are because God is who He is. That Christ is who Christ is. Prophet, priest, and king. And right now He rules and has dominion over all things. And so we are to know as a kingdom and priest that we are safe and secure under the rule of Christ our King. And yet, brothers and sisters, this doxology also ought to teach us to celebrate the greater redemption that we have, which the sacrifice of the Passover and the Exodus only typified for Israel. Right? The Passover lamb foreshadowed the coming of Christ. And now Christ has come. And in His sacrifice, He has established us as a kingdom and priest unto God. And so this is why all glory and honor and adoration is to be directed towards God for what He has achieved for us in Christ Jesus. This leads us then, brothers and sisters, to our our third and our final point, which is the reassurance of Christ's return. Please look with me at verses 7 and 8 together. Here we read this, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. Now, to be honest and upfront with you from the very get-go, this is a difficult passage. We have to recognize that this is a difficult passage. But now you need to understand why it's a difficult passage. It's a difficult passage because what John has done here is he has actually blended two Old Testament texts together. He has mixed two Old Testament texts. The first part alludes to Daniel. 
And so, if you look at verse 7, that first part, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. That comes from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, where we read this, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. Okay? And this text, though, in Daniel 7, is describing Jesus' enthronement over all the nations after God has judged the evil empires. Okay? So that's the first part. Now, the second text that is alluded to comes from Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. And so if you look to Revelation 7 first, this part where we see, in every, in, and even those who pierced Him, not all the tribes of the earth, but the part where then it says, will wail on account of Him. Right? So, so even those who pierced Him and, and wail on account of Him, that, this comes to us from Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 where we read this. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for a child. Now this text actually talks about in Zechariah uh, the end time where God will destroy every enemy of Israel and the Israelites will mourn over their rejection of Christ. And so, I hope we see right there at the beginning, it's a difficult text in the sense that it, it blends these, these two prophetic texts together. But if that wasn't enough, John adds a couple more wrinkles for us. Right? He adds two additional phrases in our text, which are these, every eye and of the earth. Right? He adds to, the, to the, those two Old Testament quotations, every eye and of the earth. We'll see in a minute why. Now, if you remember when we covered the, the different uh, views on the, on the book of Revelation here, there's going to be a difference with the preterist interpretation and in how they would view verse 7 here uh, in distinction to how we would view it. Uh, the preterist, in looking at this text, would say this text is referring to the, to the ruin of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And the reason why they would say that is because they would say, well, that That text in Zechariah 12 is talking about the Jewish peoples and not the nations of the earth. It's it's really referencing the Jewish peoples. And so they would actually translate in verse 7, all the tribes of the earth, they would translate that all the tribes of the land. So to make it more uh, specific to the Israelites. Um, and actually, um, that word absolutely in the Greek both means earth and land. It, it, it technically can be translated either way. But I think that there are a few good reasons why we are not to interpret it that way and that we are to interpret it of the earth and not referring to the ruin of Jerusalem in AD 70, but rather to the return of Christ at the end of the age. Uh, for one, I would say this that these two phrases that John adds, every eye of the earth, he does so to to broaden these texts that he brings in. And so he added these to to universalize the meaning of the quotations. Worldwide. That's what he's meaning to say. And in fact, if John wanted to, to... to kind of make it more peculiar just to Jerusalem or the tribes of, of Israel, 
There's actually a phrase John very well could have used. Right? In the Old Testament, 25 times all the tribes of Israel is used. Right? John, John could have just pulled from that phrase that that's what he meant. Uh, but he doesn't use that phrase. He uses all the tribes of the earth to, to, to broaden these Old Testament allusions, to, to show that every eye will see, to, to, to show that he's, that he's talking about not a, an event in the near future, but rather that, that great event of our Lord's coming. Also, another reason why we are not to interpret it in a preterist uh, approach to the text is because if we look back to the context of Daniel and Zechariah, the judgment that is being delivered by God is a universal, it's a worldwide judgment in those texts. And so there's no reason for us to localize it then here in the book of Revelation. Additionally, that phrase of the earth doesn't mean that in the Old Testament. Right? We can look to an example like Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where Abraham is told that uh, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and in you, all the families, what? Of the earth will be blessed. Right? It's universalized, worldwide. Likewise, we see this even in the book of Revelation is not used that way. In speaking about the beast, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 7, we're, we're told this, Also, it was allowed, that's the beast, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over what? Every tribe or all tribes, and people, and language, and nation, and all who? Who dwell on the earth. Right? So it's not even used that way in the book of Revelation. It's, it's universalized. It's, it's multi-geographical. And so we have to see it used that same way in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. And so we see what John is doing. is he, He's pointing to these saints to the second coming of Christ. Right? He's pointing them to that great day. But I want us also to see that this is going to be a great day that every eye likewise will see. And so, as some futurists like to interpret it, there will be no secret rapture. Every eye is going to see the coming of Christ. Right? That is what John is telling us. Right? Believer and unbeliever alike. And so this text likewise, brothers and sisters, is a warning. Right? It's a warning to those who reject Christ and deny Christ and who, who leave the church and who persecute His church. For in doing so, right, they have a hand in, in piercing Christ themselves. And so what He's saying to, to all peoples is, I am coming again. And if you continue in your rebellion and your sin and your unbelief, when I return, you will mourn. You will cry out. You will, you will call out to the mountains, fall on us and hide our face from the One who sits upon the throne. And so it's a warning to all. Christ is coming again. And I think verse 8 actually supports our interpretation as well. In verse 8, this is what we read. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now what's, what's Alpha? It's that first Greek letter of the, of the alphabet in Greek. What's Omega? It's it's the last letter of the Greek alphabet. It's like saying A to Z in English. So Alpha and Omega. Right? He is the first and the last. That He is the ruler of the beginning and the end and everything in between. And so what He's saying here is, just as I brought all things to be and to exist, I likewise will bring all things to consummation and end. That's what He's saying 
by that by that title right there, that he is the Alpha and the Omega. So he's, he's talking about there his, his second coming, bringing all things of, to their consummation, bringing all things to their end. And God reminds them of this. Why? So that they would not be tempted to compromise and to just give up, believing that their future lies in the hands of the wicked Roman government. But rather that they would know that their lives rather rest in their Savior Jesus Christ. Now through this reassurance, God is uh, giving through John as he pens this letter, what he is teaching the saints till then is that in the midst of suffering, right, they are to be fixating their eyes on Christ the whole time. That they are not to be storing up for themselves treasures here on earth, but rather treasures in heaven. And that same thing, brothers and sisters, is true for every single one of you here today. We are not to think that our future lies with who leads our country and whether we like them or don't like them. But rather, our future lies in the hands of our Savior. And so our future is secure and it's sure. So we're not to look to the government or rulers or anyone else. We are to simply fixate our minds and our hearts upon Christ and His return, no matter what we suffer. And what does David say? In Psalm 2, which was true then, which is true in the first century, which is true today, which will be true a thousand years from now if the church is still here. David says in Psalm 2, verse 1 and 2, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and His anointed? And His anointed, excuse me. They continue to do those things today, don't they? This is why I want us to see that there's going to be no Christian golden age. There will be no Christian golden age. And I actually want you to see this. That as believers, we shouldn't even want a Christian golden age. Think about it for a second. If you remember some of the quotations I gave you when we were going over the the different views, for those who held to the the fact that they believed there was going to be a, a thousand year kind of golden age, what is it that they said was going to occur? Essentially, the world would be Christian, governments would be Christian, universal peace and prosperity. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, wouldn't that cause us to take our eyes off of heaven and to place it upon earth? It would be as if heaven were almost here on earth. Things would all be going our way. Things would be blissful and great. We would have no reason to look to heaven, to hit our knees, and to cry out, Lord Jesus, come quickly. This is why the church of every generation, until the coming of Christ, needs to realize you are going to suffer. You are going to be persecuted. There will be no golden age. And that is on purpose. So that we will continue to look to heaven, not earth, crying out to God, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Because here on earth is is a frightful place to be. It's a terrible place to be. It's an evil, wicked place to be. Not a Christian place to be. We want to be where You are, Lord. Trial, persecution, trouble, they all remind us of sin and the fall and our consequences. They keep us looking to heaven. They keep us looking to glory. They keep us looking to Christ. This is what Paul teaches in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. This is what Scripture teaches throughout. This is what we'll see throughout the book of Revelation. That Paul says, 
that God is going to grant relief to His saints when? When Jesus is revealed from heaven. When He will afflict vengeance on all those who don't know Him. He's speaking of the second coming, which sounds a lot like Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, doesn't it? They're, they're speaking of that very same event. But at the same time, though, brothers and sisters, as I say this, you know, you may be thinking to yourself, you know, life's not going to be very good then for us. I don't want you to be dismayed. I don't want you to be dismayed. Rather, I actually want you to be encouraged by this message. I want you to be encouraged because you need to know that faith in Christ is the victory of the church here on earth. Right? Faith in Christ is the victory of the church here on earth. And there will come a day when Christ returns. And it's that day when Christ returns that there will be universal acknowledgement of His reign and dominion. And when He returns, they, and they universally recognize His victory and His triumph, they will likewise recognize our victory and triumph with Christ as well. And so let us endure patiently for Christ's sake, as Paul says to Titus in chapter 2, verse 13, that we are to be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, there is no one who can soothe the soul of the saints like You. As You bring to reminder to the churches through the book of Revelation what it is we must endure. You are readying us for it, that we might put on the armor and be ready for battle. And yet, Father, You are encouraging us that even though things will... will go down, even though things will, will be bad, even though we might be imprisoned and persecuted and there is going to be great hostility against your church, even though we might have to suffer and die for the sake of Christ. Now, we are those who are victorious in Christ. Now, we have triumphed with the Lamb. And that we are to, to look forward and fixate our eyes upon the second coming of Christ. And so long as we live on earth, to know and to hold on to that promise that, that You, Lord, will continue to supply us with all the grace and the peace that we need to endure. And we thank You for this. And we ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.